0: Okay, so let's get started. Um, we're a couple minutes uh, over. Uh, Jay, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, for everyone else who's dropped in, good evening. Uh, welcome to A16Z's uh, bio clubhouse room where we cover the future of bio and healthcare very broadly uh, and what we hope is a fun and interactive discussion. Uh, for those of you that may not know me, uh, I'm Jorge Conde, one of the general partners here at A16Z. And with me tonight are my uh, BioGP uh, colleagues, Vinita Argawala, Vijay Pandey, Julie Yu, and Mark Andreessen. And today, uh, tonight, our special guest is Jay Bradner, who is the president of the Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research, also known as NIBR, where he is in charge of the company's innovation engine and where he leads thousands of scientists across six research sites around the world who have the all-important mission to discover life-changing medicines for patients. Uh, Before heading up NIBR, Jay was previously a clinician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. He's also an entrepreneur, and as an entrepreneur, he has co-founded five biotech startups, including uh, one of my previous companies, which is where I first got to know uh, Jay. Uh, before we start, I just want to uh, drop our standard uh, quick note and disclaimer that this conversation is being recorded. Uh, for those of you who are interested in coming up to chat and ask questions, by doing so, you are consenting to us using your words and image in a recording related to this event. So um, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, um, so maybe maybe, maybe the place to start is, um, uh, you know, uh, to do a throwback to when I first met you. So I first remember meeting Jay Bradner um, when I got involved with one of his startups. Um, we were at a seminar for a well-known scientist um, a milestone birthday for a well-known scientist who will leave him unnamed to spare him. Um, but he uh, he had a milestone birthday and as tends to be the case for these sort of academic leaders. They had a, a symposium and they brought you know all of the world's experts and former students to this event to to listen from to 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 pay tribute to this individual and to also you know talk about their work etc and i remember i was sitting next to jay and jay's listening and he looks over at me and he says man this is uh interesting but it's a little bit dry so let me see if i can punch up my presentation so he opens up his laptop jay i don't know if you remember this but you impromptu took your presentation and turned it into a like like a pretty legitimate roast of said individual um, yes. And you get on stage, you absolutely, I mean, roast the hell out of this guy phenomenally well. And it was also, by the way, a very informative and interesting talk. So that was the first moment um, that I met Jay Bradner. And I thought, man, this guy's going places. And at the time, Jay was, at, as, I, as I mentioned, he was at the Dana-Farber. Um, but it was probably like, I don't know, a few years after that, Jay, when you got the call to, um, to join uh, uh, Novartis to lead up NIBER. So That's my question, right. probably my question for you just to kick us off is like, how did that happen? Like, tell, tell me, like, what was the story there? You're sitting in your lab, like, does the phone ring and someone says like, hey, come over, we need you to run NIBR?
1: Yeah, well, uh, there's so much in what you just said, Jorge. First of all, thanks for bringing me back to that fun uh, day together at that symposium. I remember it super well. And, um, you know, just a, just a great event in transcriptional biology Um, I remember sitting there realizing exactly as you say that some of the other talks maybe had more of a personal connectivity, not just scientific. And I deployed a a tool that I've never used since, but I recommend it to those here. There's um, on on Adobe Photoshop, you can create fake pop-up emails and then (laughs) time them in PowerPoint to appear during the presentation with all sorts of hilarious messages. And we sat there together writing these hilarious email pop-ups that as they (laughs) appeared, I had to pretend not to see them because the the, the allure would be that that somebody was actually emailing me these messages about this um, esteemed scientist. That was a fun afternoon. Um, I think exactly as you say, You know, I was uh, in a great uh, space at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School as a physician scientist taking care of patients on the stem cell transplant wards. I'm an allo stem cell transplant physician and having retrained in chemistry and chemical biology with um, Stuart Schreiber at Harvard Chemistry and then ultimately the Broad. um, You know, it had always been my dream and vision to have a, a lab of my own someday and put my uh, own ideas to, to work. Um, and our interest was in gene control, understanding the way genes are turned on and off and using small molecule approaches to dissect that owing to the temporospatial opportunity that molecules afford for dissecting really fast biology. And um, from time to time doing this work um, in a translational setting of, of cancer um we would you know find that holy trinity of a small molecule a target of interest and a therapeutically relevant biological pathway and at that moment you get sort of impatient about getting your molecules out um into an environment where they could be really professionally considered as putative investigational agents we always did that through small biotechs because for all the resources we had at the farber intellectual resources principally uh, we didn't have the capacity or the expertise to you know, write an IND and bring a medicine just right back to our phase one clinical trial groups. And so I really loved these interactions with these um, startup companies that would spin out of the lab, on, typically on Tuesdays, where um, in a research meeting or an SAB, you know, you could have the experience of being a real world drug hunter and then retreat back to the safety of the scholarship and the familiar Uh, teaching and bedside care of the Farber. And so um, at the time we got to know each other and started CIROS, um, I was really having the time of my life as a scientist, you know, enjoying training and mentoring, enjoying teaching introduction to chemical biology. And it's fair to say, wasn't wasn't looking for a job at all. Um, And I was giving a seminar at Sloan Kettering um, Cancer Center and, uh, you know, you get your agenda in the morning and it said, you're going to have a two hour lunch with Charles Sawyers. <laughs> and I love Charles Sawyers, but two hours, that's going to be a real deep dive, you know, and we got to, <laughs> uh, we got to lunch and just, together.
0: Just for the folks in the room, who's, who is Charles? Oh, geez. Charles
1: is just like the North Star of cancer biology. He's uh, maybe the one of most accomplished translational basic cancer researchers in our space. He Helped to clarify the mechanism of the downstream pharmacology of matinib. Its mechanism of resistance um, made fundamental contributions to understanding cell signaling. But moreover, established the rationale for overcoming resistance to a um, matinib or glebeck, and then subsequently went on um, to, you know, even I think more profound insights into um, nuclear receptor, uh, sex hormone biology, and prostate cancer, and. It's just impossible to list his contributions. He now leads um, HOP, which is the um, remarkable translational research organization within insulin Kettering that he that he started. Um, and a great guy, and a great guy. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I went to this lunch with Charles and he kind of coolly said, you know, this is either gonna be a real short lunch or we're not gonna have enough time. Um, but I learned he was on the board of directors of Novartis, which wasn't um, known to me at the time. And uh, he had said that, um, their storied leader of Nibber, Mark Fishman was starting to think about his next chapter and they had made a list of, um, uh, potential successors. And, um, I said, I was on that list and would I want to stay on that list? And I'll tell you, Jorge, it was just a monosynaptic reflex, you know, thinking <laughs> in a millisecond about, you know, wanting to have a chapter and the science of therapeutics and really making medicines and wanting to work in an environment that I knew to be very scholarly and ambitious, um, a place where I knew scientists who had transitioned and had extraordinary experiences and had really made impact. And you know, one of my heroes, Jurek Zimmerman, the um, inventor of the medicine matinib actually the the page of his lab notebook where he first completed the amide coupling to solubilize that um. HeteroCycle sits on my um, wall here um, in in my study. And I just thought the chance to work with these real world drug hunters as a head of research was something I couldn't couldn't imagine. Passing up and just um, accepted the job right on the spot. Uh, And so, you know, it was an easy decision only because um, back in our lab, um, we had started to see some of the molecules from the lab or their derivatives you know, reach human clinical investigation through these um, project-focused, typically startup companies. And as those patients started to uh, respond, some of them, um, it really, you know, recalibrated my
0: uh, own expectations for the type of science I I wanted to do. Do you, you know, so now you're running, I mean, arguably, uh, certainly one of the most important R&D engines in the entire industry. Um, and I would, it's probably the largest too, right? Or among the largest, I would imagine. Um, you're pretty far away at this point from treating patients. Do you miss that? And in some ways, are you, are you farther away from the science because of this sort of massive scale that you now have at Niber? Yeah, you know,
1: uh, you asked two questions there. I'll try to get them both more efficiently than the last one. Um, I do miss seeing patients. Um, you know, uh, um, it wasn't my, um, I wasn't for sure going to be a clinician. I wanted to go to medical school to learn about molecules and disease pathways. And this was a time when there wasn't, you know, a PhD program in chemical biology. But when I got there and hit the wards at the University of Chicago and, you know, rounding with um, pediatric cancer doctors and, um uh just really uh you know resonated with me that though this was an upsetting experience to be so close to people affected by that disease it was a really uh, moving human experience and i always wanted that to be a part of my uh, time in science going forward and so though i was never a master clinician the way that so many of my heroes from the farber and elsewhere were by focusing in stem cell transplantation i could attend four to six weeks a year um, and, you know, remain um, not just proficient, but really effective at, in the narrowly defined space of stem cell transplantation. Um, and, um, of course, leaning on just so many experts and consultants. Um, but in moving to NIBR, um, especially as part of this role is to serve on the executive committee of Novartis, it's just not possible to be a doctor in the way that I was before. I'm pretty sure that you know Eli Lilly doesn't want an Avartis executive reading out the SAEs on a CMV prophylaxis clinical trial. <laughs> it just would be inappropriate <laughs> um, to be honest with you and a type of conflict of that, that, that many were comfortable with at the time, but, but I, I in truth wasn't. And so um, I accept that in this chapter of my time in science, the focus is on therapeutic science innovation and um, clinical translation, because as you know, but some here might not, that at NIBR, we're responsible for the invention of the medicine, but also its translation into phase one and two clinical trials. Um, So I do miss seeing patients. I keep an active medical license, um, but I haven't attended in five years. Around science, um, it was important to me that in coming to NIBR, that this role not be so administrative as to um, keep me from being a scientist. I um, um, uh, was in my mid-40s when I got here and really just starting to understand all the pieces of chemistry and biology and the computation of, you know, genome structure and function at scale and, um, and still really wanted to invent. Um, and, uh, and so I've, I've worked hard to find a, a small space within NIBR where I can Execute primarily as a scientist. I lead a program together with um, a chemist and a biologist in the space of targeted protein degradation and molecular glues. And um, we, you know, we have a group meeting and a portfolio of projects and a clinical stage molecule now. And um, it is very exciting. As I say to people when they join NIBR, you know, when you go to Disney World, you got to go on all the rides. And I think
0: to come to Novartis and not be a scientist <laughs> would be a, a missed opportunity. By the way, thank you for n- not correcting me and pronouncing it Niber for all of these years. <laughs> um, you know, li-
1: honestly, Jorge, it goes by Niber or Niber. Um, I've <laughs> even heard Niber. Um, there's no official pronunciation, so you're-, you're Fair you're,
0: enough. <laughs> feel free.
1: Jay, you mentioned um,
2: earlier in your discussion about kind of transitioning from academia to
1: you know being a full-time, drug hunter and leading the team at Novartis, that there was this gap you had noticed in terms of insights making it to, I think the phrase you used was a putative investigational drug candidate. So I'm really curious if you could spend a few minutes breaking that down. What's missing in academia? What's the role that you see biotechs filling? And for some of our listeners are, you know, the founders of very early stage biotech companies, what muscles should they be building, you know, to get to putative investigational drug candidates faster? Well, I appreciate the question. Also a chance even for clarification. For sure, you know, all of the allied fields that together comprise therapeutic science and drug discovery and drug development are well represented um, in the academy and there are degree granting programs in each discrete discipline. And I suppose then one could create a collaborative network across many institutions to ultimately shepherd a technology through the clinical investigation. There's so many great examples of this, CAR T-cell therapy at the University of Pennsylvania being only one. But in the small molecule space, it's a rare institution, even one as expansive as Harvard that has um, really all of the capabilities and expertise to take a molecule from proof of concept molecule through its preclinical paces, is optimized for drug-like properties, navigated through preclinical safety, reconsidered based on DMPK learnings, and then prepared as a regulatory document supported by GMP manufacturer and entering into a phase one clinical trial. And not just because it's expensive, which it is more than any other single project in my lab could I have justified, but it's um, it's also quite a responsibility to take, um, and um, and so for sure in the biologics and the cell therapies there are so many examples, in gene therapies of academic centers shouldering the transition of phase one investigational agents, some quite successfully, um, but fewer examples in the small molecule space. Now, why is that? I don't know. I I used to think that you know great chemistry, you know esteemed chemistry departments like Harvard's might look down their nose at medicinal chemistry, but I think that's not true. I think that's not fair. There are so many organic chemists at Harvard who really wanted to see their molecules through, typically did it through biotechs. And that translational impulse is evolving. Um, but the intellectual resourcing and the per project resource allocation, um I think it's just a better fit for a professional research environment and the disciplines um, are just better represented more thoroughly and deeply considered by scientists who you know work in the private sector I had a meeting today with some colleagues from NCATS and it's fair to say that there are places like NCATS that have consolidated this expertise in many INDs to their name um But I found that these project focused biotech companies are such a powerful catalyst for technology transition. You'll know a catalyst as, you know, something that makes the inevitable happen faster. Um, and that was absolutely my experience. The extreme focus, the ability to raise resources for discrete milestones, um, the singularity of mindset, uh, and purpose uh, to reach the patient with a given idea, um, is, um, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it is a, it is a unique and appropriate environment, but it can heroically be done in academia, and I don't want to um, uh, miss a chance to acknowledge some of the, the the great therapeutic centers and departments who managed to do it.
0: And also, probably fair to say that, um, and I think this was implied in, in what you just said, Jay. But um, as the industry. As the industry has sort of moved forward and matured as you know the ecosystem of startups has evolved and grown you know just richer and and, and broader um uh, academia um academic medical centers specifically have i think taken great leaps forward to find ways to um to collaborate and sort of you know and have really smooth handoffs and and just virtuous relationships uh, virtual cycle type relationships with, between industry, academia, medical centers. And that's proven to be very powerful. I mean, you can almost see that physically, uh, the embodiment of that physically, like when you just look at the Boston-Cambridge ecosystem. And it's been a pretty neat thing to see evolve over the last decade or so. And you've had a much uh, better vantage point on that than I have, but, but I've, always, I've always been super impressed by that. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's, it moves so fast. I mean, if, if you had
1: given me access to $15 million to my academic laboratory, I'd have started 30 projects. But, you know, that um, resource in a biotech environment can, you know, catalyze such expedited, authoritative clinical translation. And now, Jorge, it is. It's such a fluid dialogue talent going into and out of academia and then, you know, um, like minded biopharmaceutical environments, professors that used to, you know, not want to talk about their biotech company because it was unbecoming now using you know we and our when they talk about their translated science many starting companies even before the paper is published, um, <laughs> so um, uh, yes it is it's 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 a much more fluid ecosystem for ideas technologies and and individuals now than before.
2: So Jay, roll that forward. Like, uh, what advice would you give for professors? that are translationally minded and thinking about uh, what the next steps are, let's say, you know, they, they're, they're thinking about jumping in for their comp-
1: uh, to build a company, what would you tell them? Well, um, I really think this is a, a choose your own adventure, Vijay, to be honest, because, um, you know, the biggest surprise in coming to Nibber from the Dana-Farber and the Broad was how similar it was how familiar it was. I, I guess I was bracing for a much bigger change. Um, you know, the surface plasma resonance instruments had like, you know, automation attached to them. I mean, there were mm-hmm. certain upgrades, but the concepts, the assays, the instrumentation, the language, the concepts, the laws of physics were all the same. <laughs> um, and um and maybe the ambitions were a, a little more channeled and, and focused, and possibly a little more collaborative. But but by and large, it was more similar than different. And so, I guess that's the first thing I would share: is um, there is still this perception um, in the academy that you know, go to the dark side, or you know, sacrifice your career or cash in your chips is my least favorite. Um, Mm-hmm. of all of those, because um, of course, professional, professors today make way more money in biotech than people in biotech. I would say that um, uh, the first thing I'd say is it's way more similar than different. And the second is, it's easy to say now, because I've already made the change, but I've quite liked this idea of thinking of your time in science and chapters. And so like, what is the purpose of this next chapter? And if it's to really commit and download the science of therapeutics, then work in a professional environment. Take away the safety net, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, decline your leave of absence and just go for it. The way you approached your postdoc, all in to download structural biology. Um, uh, because the paths are bi-directional now. And if you leave in a decent way, maybe, you know, they take you back. Um, or, or maybe this adventure leads you to a new spot. For sure, though, Vijay, you don't have to quit your job to get a lot of those experiences. I I learned a ton um, on those Tuesdays with the biotech companies that spun out of the lab. And I suppose I didn't know at that time what I was training for by going to those meetings, but um, really seeing professional science in action and team science executed in that way and um, how hard we would work to raise money and then how diligently we would deploy it. um, The care taken to clinical trial data sets and regulatory interactions were all a vital preparation for ultimately I think being qualified to do what I do now.
2: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of universities are also building programs to try to bridge that gap. Uh, for me, it was spark at Stanford, uh, Dyer Mokley-Rosen leading that effort. I think it was really great to bring together people from industry and pharma as well as academics and so on. And I think you're seeing things like that everywhere.
1: Thank you. Yes.
0: Hey, Jay. Um, uh, so now, now where you are, I mean, you, so you've traveled through a bunch of different worlds and ecosystems, right? Academia, startups, now I'm gonna pause dramatically to say it, Nibber, pronouncing it correctly. Um, uh, now, that you've, now that you're sitting from the vantage point at Nibber, you know, you're really like the elephant now, right? Um, in terms of, you know, being this massive organization, massively influential, obviously incredibly well-resourced. Um, you you must get emails, people knocking on your door from little startups looking for ways to work with you, to partner with you, etc. Um, and one of the you know one of the silly jokes that you know I always tell young startups um, is that look you know partnering with uh, you know with biopharma is important for lots of reasons right validation, collaboration, etc. But in a lot of ways it's it's you know if you're the startup you're a little mouse and um, it, you're going to try to dance with an elephant. And if you're gonna dance with an elephant like like Novartis, like you better hope that it's a pretty graceful elephant. Otherwise, it's just gonna squash you. Um, like, how do you how do you work with? How do you think about partnering with biotech, little biotechs? How do you think about that collaboration? Having sat, having been in yeah. the other chair previously. Man, there's so much in
1: this. All right. Um, well, first, let me dispel one construct of what you said. Um, you really, as a scientist, don't partner with Novartis. You don't collaborate with Novartis. Just like, you know, um, when I used to work with Marty Matzik, it's not like I had a partnership with Baylor College of Medicine. You know, I was working with Marty. And, um, and in that regard, um, I find it interesting sometimes that some of our greatest successes reflect great on Novartis. Some of our Gaffs reflect poorly on Novartis. And, and we have to really carry ourselves, all of us, to like really be the one, to meet the one, to, to really uh, be a good collaborator because um, you know, we're, we're in an industry that's highly scrutinized and reputationally people put upon the organization the experience they had with an individual scientist. We're really, at NIBR, um, it is a big organization, 6,000 scientists, six sites, 270 drug discovery projects, 90 clinical stage molecules. I mean, it's a heavy download, but actually what it is, it's just like big glassy elephant with a bunch of mice inside. I mean, the actual project teams function <laughs> just like zeros. I mean, they have a, you know, they don't have a CSO, they have a PTL um, and um, the project team lead, and they command the full matrix resources necessary to execute their project. And, they're able to recruit more human resources if they're a great leader and have a commanding idea, and um, it's actually very nimble to start and stop projects because of that. It's sort of like the science elevates
0: above the org chart. Um, Novartis but does that. For sure, does that translate, Jay, Does that translate to doing BD partnerships? Like, if- oh, for sure. Yeah, I'll tell you. I only make this mis- made this mistake once, and I won't say the deal, but. Um,
1: one time I saw this really cool technology. I'm like, oh yeah, we're gonna do a partnership with these guys. And we worked it up and we got all engaged and, and we did the deal and the science was working. And then they hit a challenge and they wanted to stop the partnership. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, You always hit a challenge in science. We gotta fight through this. But what I had failed to realize in that first year at NIMR was the people at Novartis will do a deal because I'm the president and it's important to me or a member of our leadership team But they will run through walls if it's their deal. And so by really listening to these teams and the disease area heads and their leadership teams and knowing what they see that they need to execute their grand idea, um, those are the partnerships to do. Now, the challenge is it's probably way easier to get in touch with me than one of those team leads because you may not know who they are. Um, They're not, you know, out Mm -hmm. beating their chest at the Gordon conference, you know, um, uh, celebrating their, you know, um, interim successes towards their ultimate ambition of a real world therapeutic. Um, And it's nice not to be distracted by that just relentless self and laboratory and, you know, biotech marketing exercise. But it does mean that they can be harder to find. And so I would just say to anybody wanting to get some good science going with Novartis with all the appropriate resourcing, you know, um, um, that, that today people rightly accept from their interactions with us um, is to get to know the like-minded leader within NIBR. Because if I'm the champion of the deal, it might go through, but if the champion of the deal is um, in our organization leading science, it'll go through walls.
0: Got it, that's super helpful. Uh, speaking of going through walls, um, I'd love to get your take on, uh, and this is going to be hard to make it, you know, um, short cause I'm sure we could talk about this for hours, but I'd love to get your quick take on like, what's the broad state of, of innovation right now in therapeutics? Like you talk a lot about, you know, molecular glues, like what gets you particular, what gets you excited in terms of what's on the near horizon in terms of, of breakthroughs for therapeutics?
1: Man, for me, that's a long list, you know. Um, it's like asking my mom what her favorite chocolate is. It's a long conversation. All right. (laughs) All right, I'll I'll be I'll be choiceful. I'm crazy about the idea of molecular glues. I think targeted protein degradation is, you know, Mm -hmm. the one such exemplification, but also our SHIP 2 program is an intramolecular glue that locks the repressive SH2 domains down onto the ship 2 tyrosine phosphatase domain, including the active site through a cryptic channel and, and an allosteric juncture between the three domains. I mean, it's just unprecedented mode of inhibition and a first ever inhibitor of a phosphatase. So I'm crazy about molecular glues going back to like cyclosporin and the immunophilins. Um, So I, what I like about molecular glues is that we have a certain fixedness in our field of drug discovery that drives and recruits an asymmetric fast follower investment all across biopharma. It's that you drug a bromodomain protein and there's a bromodomain group started at whatever, Genentech, and a bromodomain company pops up. And and because you know now that bromodomains are druggable, as we drug the WD repeat domains at NIBR with EED inhibitors, there are WD repeat domain companies. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, look at all the great kinase inhibitors that came on the heels of a matinib and, and, mm-hmm. and others, storesporin, natural products. Um, the problem is that there's this fixedness that we can be a little bit monosynaptic about this, that a drug-like small molecule, cell permeable, which is great, it functions through a monovalent interaction, bind inhibit, bind, and activate. But what about, you know, post-translational modification state? What if a small molecule is a non-covalent PTM? that leads to a totally neomorphic function of the protein. Um, it puts a little you know, aliphatic feature that resembles a um, phenylalanine mutation associated with um, some disease gene and then modulates protein function. These are harder things to imagine. They're actually really hard to find, but that's what I like about molecular glues is this idea that there is a, a bivalent state to the molecule that it can short circuit disease pathways. And for sure, degradation is one great um, conceptualization of molecular glues, but there's many, many others. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about, a small molecule space. Yeah, okay, and I was the, gonna ask you.
0: So that's in a small molecule space. If you move over to like the cell and gene therapy space, yeah, if I could move you over there, what, there. What, Yeah. what's exciting there? So, you know, it's our job to
1: kind of look around the corner and imagine what um, what are the implications of a Zolgensma of a of a gene replacement systemic AAV nine with tropism to the neuron? What are the implications of that? Um, you know, one manifestation of that thinking would be well, let's just line up all the you know monogenic diseases and do gene replacement across the board, and we're pretty sure that that's in play now, surely for the prevalent diseases. But but then you start to wonder, well, what are the other payloads I can put in there? What what other protein biomolecules could I use to short circuit disease biology? And so we have a program with Sangamo where um, it's like I call the Reese's peanut butter cup where we take you know our Swiss chocolate and their California peanut butter and we start to make chimeric <laughs> transcription <laughs> factors that can activate or repress disease genes. You know, um, I think that there is this next wave of biomolecules that function intracellularly and intranuclearly that will require the learnings of gene replacement therapy to ultimately deliver on the full promise of gene therapy. So those are two projects we are working on. There's a lot of stuff that's cool that we're not. I'm crazy about xenotransplantation. I just feel like with all that you can do now in base editing and you know genome insertion homologous recombination like now is the moment, you know, to engineer the pig and when that pig says, "Jay, you've gone too far," you know you got something. You know, <laughs> so I think um, I think genome engineering is such an exciting space. And big as we are, we have to take choices on where to focus. And at least right now, we only have a really bespoke couple of uses for genome editing and genome engineering. But that's a space that I read on Saturday mornings with you know real curiosity and um, sometimes deep envy because I think that's a really
0: um, Amazing place to innovate. So you, you've always taken pride um, uh, on behalf of yourself, but more broadly, just sort of the industry in 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 the in the importance of of, of drug hunters, right? This knowledge, know how, you know, drive to to discover new drugs uh, to treat intractable diseases or underserved diseases, um, underserved patient populations, I should say. Um, if, as this is kind of a maybe a silly question, but like, as we shift more towards cell and gene therapies or other applications for genome engineering, like xenotransplantation, um, do we move from drug hunting um, to drug farming, and what I mean by that is, you know, you know instead of like trying to go out and discover something, like we're very sort of meticulously marching down you know. A tackling new diseases based on the foundations of what we, we've already built, right so we have the chassis for gene therapy so like we come up with new payloads um, is that, is, that a, is that a sort of a framework that works in the, for the future of 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 r and d or is it always going to be more hunting than farming? Great question.
1: Um, I can think of spaces where the farming analogy resonates with me, but I think it's more um hunting but i i I might even use a different term i find drug discovery very artisanal it's probably the most technology forward artisanal craft in the world you know i mean the table stakes of really understanding molecular recognition whether it be small molecules biomolecules understanding the plasticity of reagents through the lens of molecular biology you know, re- thinking through how to dissect a disease process to approach it therapeutically, and then all the calisthenics of vetting, retrofitting, improving, and optimizing a therapeutic, it is artisanal. And the second word that comes to mind is it is humbling. I mean, when you have your like third late stage phototox signal in an animal model, you realize just what a miracle it is anytime. One of these medicines goes the distance, you know? Um, and, you know, we, we, we celebrate every achievement along the way. First crystal structure, first time you drop below a micromolar in a cell, proof of concept in a patient, of course, is such an emotional experience. But all of the science that we take on in Novartis, it only matters to us if it goes the distance. There's no intermediate strategy. We're already public, we're already partnered. We just have to make the medicine And so this culture of truth-seeking, now taken all the way back to the inventive moment, it makes it very artisanal and in that way really cool. I I can't wait for generative chemistry to work to the point where I can just like, you know, input a protein fold and, um, you know, and it spits out, you know, the heterocycles in the five micromolar range, you know, maybe that day will come, (laughs) I, I have faith.
2: Uh, actually, um, we're getting close there, Jay, though. I mean, I, I think,
1: you know, and what's interesting is
2: that the individual parts are getting there. I, I think what will be f- fun to see is presumably the artisanal parts get less and less. I think development is still really hard. Uh, and then clinical trials are also very complicated. But I don't know. My suspicion is that, and, you know, one of the key things that we've been seeing is that uh, less and less are sort of required to be artisanal it's still a lot today, but that, uh, the, the next 20 years, I think will be very interesting.
1: I'm with you. I mean, and we're, as you know, huge, um, hugely invested in the success of generative chemistry. I think these are what I mean by technology forward artisanal work. You There still has to be the physical exemplification of the molecule to assess its utility as a probe, as a selective perturbation of biology, and ultimately as a therapeutic. And, and I love that, you know, the, just how technology forward it gets, is, there's no limit to that. But I still find it quite artisanal, um, and uh, and maybe maybe there is a way to be more systematic and to farm it um, for sure. As we've increased the number of small molecules we have access to from I think three million when I joined to over a billion now, owing to the massive parallel synthetic cap- capacity of. DNA encoded library chemistry. We do find things um, through more systematic analyses of um, of chemical equity, but the very next step is deeply
0: artisanal. Um, yeah, I hope that's not disappointing. No, no, that's super helpful. Uh, that's I think it's fascinating, um, especially to see like the scale at which things are increasing um, and hopefully improving. Um, looking forward, a couple. You know, looking forward, you, you talked about looking forward the next 10 years or so. Um, what, what have we learned of anything from, from this pandemic, from COVID? Um, and has that impacted how you think about, you know, the work at NIBR and how NIBR works? Yeah, man, um,
1: I mean, quite a lot. I'm sure institutionally, programmatically, scientifically, um, you know, sociopolitically. Um, The learnings are just so massive, um, operationally and organizationally as well. Um, I think we've learned that we're pretty fragile as a um, a species, that something um, so small and simple in genomic complexity could be so disruptive, um, so devastating, that it could so exaggerate um, inequities in our you know, pretty well established and thoroughly considered societies. Um, It could drive wedges through countries and within them um, and can kill and evolve to kill um, even more effectively. And so I think that that's probably the biggest learning for me is just how fragile this whole thing is. And second is how ill prepared we were. Um, And I think we can do better. I think we, we could expect to do better. But I also think it's pretty amazing that the investments in biotherapeutic infrastructure could be pivoted so nimbly to respond with the best available technologies of the moment but I do think we can be better better prepared um, I think we've learned that we can work in a different way and that uh, it's for sure been the experience at niBR that um, people find a way to do science at the highest level we kept the la- lights on through the whole pandemic and those of us not, I'm experimentalist anymore, you know, working from home and uh, made the labs a little less dense, quite a bit more safe and knock on wood. Um, You know, we've not experienced any workplace transmission or the like, and, and managed in this tough year to, you know, invent all sorts of new medicines for diseases as scary um, as COVID-19. You know, incredible learnings uh, personally, um just never spent more time in and around my family. And if everybody can stay healthy, maybe there's, um, you know, that small blessing in this. Organizationally, I would say, um, and maybe thinking more broadly to the, the types of leaders in the community, maybe even assembling here this evening, um, we've had a lot of real learnings. Um, you know, um, everything from distributed clinical trials and distributed workplace to, Um, productive ways to connect and communicate from home, Um, the lack of essentiality of perceived essential business travel, Uh, ways to grow connectivity, but ways that connectivity can become more insular. Um, The threat to innovation by not being able to stochastically encounter, you know, um, your favorite chemist in the cafeteria um, or hit a whiteboard uh, with a couple of postdocs. uh, I don't know. I, I think that that'll, there have be been massive, massive, massive learnings. And I'd be more interested to be a listener to this conversation. But I, I read recently in our um, a really, I think it was last week, it was from Microsoft. And they talked about the way in which the pandemic might, you know, ask more of, um, of employers had these seven trends about flexible work and talent now being totally accessible everywhere in this, quote unquote, hybrid world. And um that there's high productivity but it's 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 accompanied by maybe an, an unrecognized or underrecognized exhaustion in the workforce and how yeah. established scientists and established leaders probably can established managers can be effective but it's hard for new people the thing i most worry about other than innovation in this different way of working is um i guess engagement's the right word you know Um, I get so much energy when I was at the Farber going to lunch and seeing the kids, you know, facing uh, leukemia diagnosis and uh, on a drip. And then you go back to the lab with a real sense of purpose, you know, that's your compensation for the day. Like you're, you're fueled up and motivated and um, being at an arm's length now from primary clinical practice, you know, that energy is like the first moments of molecular recognition or the first two or three patients responding on an open label study. And, um, and I think being in the labs around each other is something I, I quite miss and I'm looking forward to getting back
0: to. Yeah. And hopefully we're not too far away from, from us getting back to that. And, and for what it's worth, Jade, like, you know, it, for me, it's inspiring um, to, to interact with leaders like you who are part of an industry that has brought us back from the brink of uh, This pandemic, um, you know with such incredible creativity and it 's not just this pandemic it's all of the various diseases that we're having um, inc- an incredible transformative impact on and will have an tr- incredible transformative impact on in the coming years. Um, so thank you for all of the work that you all do uh, and uh, uh, both at, at neighbor and of course across the industry.